High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a weedy conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. On this episode, we will talk about weed, marijuana, cannabis, a very divisive conversation, almost as divisive as, let's say, abortion or gun control. The loud people are either really for it or against it, and probably most people are, are in the middle of the extremes, but that comes later. First, I want to tell you about a forum I spoke to recently in Santa Rosa, California, sponsored by Northern California HIDA, High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. HIDA coordinates law enforcement narcotic efforts from federal, state, tribal, and local agencies. When people think law enforcement or police, the association is usually putting people in jail, incarceration. But to my surprise, law enforcement does much, much more than that. Yes, their job is to keep us safe. Our emergency department, despite having full-time security, calls 911 about four times a month because of violence. I've been assaulted at work, knocked to the ground by a patient, and the SWAT team was there really quick. I was very amazed, and I'll always be grateful for the quick and very caring response. But I also see law enforcement officers bring me patients to the emergency department for mental health evaluation. The cops are my children's age, and they talk to me like they're doing an internship in psychiatry. Doc, the patient was hearing voices hitting the air and talking and laughing to things that weren't there. He has a prescription of Ferroquil, but I looked at it, and I'm not sure he's really taking his medications. They're amazing. At the Haida Forum I attended, called Communities in Crisis, the organizers brought together parents whose children died of fentanyl, legislators, educators, public health leaders, and other community leaders. I talked from a medical perspective, and the other speakers talked about solutions from homelessness to the open drug market to social media, journalism, and laws. People would be surprised to learn how much education and prevention is spearheaded by law enforcement. Ironically, I, the doctor, emphasize the importance of deterrence. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. Thanks for your high truths education. I learn a lot whenever I listen. I'm a fourth year medical student and have been absorbing a lot of information over the years, and you add to that. 
My question is about marijuana. You talk about the many adverse health effects. However, marijuana is legal in most states. There is a major role in healthcare education for this drug. Is law enforcement still involved in the marijuana issue? Joseph, you are the best. Thank you so much for your question. First, I appreciate all that is thrown your way in medical school, cramming textbooks and data into your brain, and yet you still have time for high truths. And you're right, the medical and health community have a lot to do in terms of cannabis education and prevention of harms. A record high number of pregnant women are using marijuana with adverse effects on their unborn child. You know, we just mentioned fentanyl, and I interview every patient that either overdosed on purpose by accident from fentanyl or wants to get off fentanyl, and invariably they started their journey to drugs by priming their brain with marijuana. Babies are getting poisoned from weed candy. Patients need to be screened before surgery for marijuana because it affects their anesthesia effects. And the medical community needs to do a better job in documenting cannabis-associated diagnosis so patients understand what happened to them and are given an opportunity to prevent recurrence of their disease. But Joseph, you asked how is law enforcement involved? And to answer your question, I have a dynamic duo from the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI. Ed Shamalia is a former Kentucky State Trooper and prior head of the state's narcotic agency. He serves as a coordinator for NMI. Dale Quigley is a law enforcement officer from Colorado and deputy coordinator of NMI. NMI is part of HIDA, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Program, which is under the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Ed and Dale are one of my favorite people, always bringing me a smile, always teaching me something new. And to learn more about NMI, Ed Chamalia, and Dale Quigley, check out the High Truth show notes. Ed and Dale, welcome to High Truths. Thank you, Renee. Ed, this is where you say thank you, too. I did say thank you. <laughs> and the show is going to be great. You just couldn't understand me because I was speaking hillbilly. That's right. And for our guests, you could tell that uh, Ed is from a different uh, country called Kentucky. That is correct. (laughs) Coming from the Eastern time zone where it's almost lunchtime here. That's great. I've been looking forward to this show because uh, you guys are one of my favorite people. Uh, Anytime I see you and meet up with you, I always smile. I learn something and I have a great time. So uh, audience will be as well. So let's start, uh, Ed, with you because you're from Kentucky. Um, But tell us about yourself and how you got into law enforcement and what you're doing. Uh, now, well, how did that lead you to marijuana, of all things? Well, actually, uh, I always wanted to be a cop, so there was never any indif- uh, indecision on my part growing up because I knew as a youngster that's what I wanted to do. After graduating from college, I joined the Kentucky State Police in 1979. Ed, you didn't want to go into ice cream like your grandfather? And no, ice, no, no. He like sold the business. He sold the business, so no. Now, I wanted to be a police officer. That's all I ever wanted to be. And uh, like I said, I joined state police in 79 and spent almost the next 31 years uh, with the Kentucky State Police in a multitude of assignments. But, Ronit, one of the things that I saw early on when I went to Pikeville, my first assignment, was marijuana was always present and it was always available. And you understand even the 70s marijuana 
was a relatively benign substance considering what we're talking about today. But that was a common denominator when you started talking to young people, particularly as I progressed through narcotics and different assignments, when you started looking at drug traffickers who were also users, when you started discussing with them their introduction into illicit substances, it was always alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. So that kind of piqued my interest. This is a substance we need to be paying attention to. And the last eight years of my state police career, I spent as the commander of the cannabis suppression in the Kentucky Marijuana Governor Strike Force. And that's all we did was outdoor, indoor grow ops. And uh, again, uh, you know, Kentucky, most people don't realize that next to your state, Kentucky is the second most prolific outdoor marijuana producing state in the nation. Uh, only California usurps us, and primarily because you have uh, about five times the land mass we did in Cal that we do in Kentucky. So that that's why I, I uh, uh, I've been interested in this topic. When I retired from the state police, I went to the Appalachia Haida is their marijuana coordinator. I spent four years uh, coordinating the the marijuana activities within that four state region. And then for the last 10 years, I've been the national coordinator for NMI. And uh, NMI actually started out in your backyard at the San Diego Imperial Valley Haida is an outdoor initiative. And in 2014, uh, NMI started tracking the impacts of legalization. And our focus is primarily on how legalization, either medically or commercial adult use, is having an impact to public health and public safety in this country. So that's a little bit of me in a nutshell. Uh, you know, my passion uh, lies on the fact that I have five grandkids. Why I do what I do is because of these five individuals and they're the target of this industry. And uh, what we're trying to do is educate people to the reality of where today's marijuana is, who it's impacting and how it's impacting them. That's great. And I made the ice cream comment because you have an ice cream scoop uh, and sign on your on your background. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Dale, you're on. Tell us about yeah. yourself and how did you get connected to, to the Kentucky guy? Well, I figured somewhere along the lines that the HIDA program had an ADA or ADHB requirement they had to meet. And that, that's how I ended up getting hooked up with him. I spent... 40 years of my life as a cop out here in Colorado, the vast majority of that was working in drugs and undercover. Uh, one of those things that I never thought I would do, but once I was exposed to it, it's, it's like that old pair of sweatpants you got at home and those old tennis shoes you probably should have thrown out. They just feel so good and so right when you put them on at the end of the day. So, yeah, I, I got that's how I got started into narcotics, you know, from working the streets and doing vehicular homicides, send up working drugs. And it's spot on when he said, you know, it, one of the common denominators in all of our drug investigations, regardless of the drug that we were investigating, was there was always weed. It was ubiquitous. And it goes back to what we hear today. Well, it's just weed. And that's how people look at this particular drug. And I think if we're talking about the drug that we all knew back in the 60s and early 70s, we wouldn't be sitting here having these conversations. But that's not the case. That is just not the case. When I retired from law enforcement in 2016 and went to work for the Haida program full time, and Ed and I have been together since uh, the first part of 2017, you know, he's paying for sins in an earlier life is my guess. But yeah, <laughs> the, the the whole concept of, well, it's just weed, you know, we need to legalize it. It's good for us. It can't be addictive. There's no withdrawal syndromes. We're a better driver. 
we realized at the onset of this, there's so much misinformation and disinformation about this particular drug. I think it's probably more misunderstood than any drug in our current pharmacopoeia in America or even in the world right now. So we realized that there is a huge need to displace the misinformation and disinformation promoted by the proponents of legalization and put some facts in there, evidence-based, scientific-based research, good, solid peer-reviewed facts that say, you know what, you're really not a better driver. And yeah, it truly is addictive. And Renee, you see it on the front lines every night when you go into work, is that the, the issue that we're seeing in public health and public safety is all tied back to the increased levels of potency that we have never seen before. So, you know, it, it's one of those ones that, do I miss police work? Yes and no. Uh, do I see a need for what we're doing? Yeah, I do. Because there's so much of a vacuum out there that people are operating in and they're making decisions by and rules and regulations and laws by that is just flies in the face of current research and findings. So, you know, in a short nutshell, I made the loop, saw the need and have stayed with it because like Ed, I now have two point, well, let's see, it'd be about 2.4 grandchildren right now. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's scary that my gene pool is continuing, isn't it? it it's just what the world needs is more short people like me. But, you know, there's a, there's a truly a need out there that we need to fill. And that's that's what I'm trying to do is leave a better world for the next generation. Didn't do a great, great job for the new generation of centurions out there, but maybe I can make it a little bit better for everybody else. Yes, I've heard that. I've heard people say when they talk to young kids, we didn't do a good job. And oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's up to you now to make the world a better, to the new kids, for them to kind of fix it up and make the world a little better. Yeah. And, you know, the sad thing here, Renee, too, is that we are probably the worst messengers <laughs> on this particular topic. We're two old white guys and old cops. Undercover cop. How did you, uh, when you said that, you used to be undercover cop because you don't, yeah. don't, you look more like a cop now. What did you look like when you, when you were undercover? I had hair back then, Ronnie. Yes, I did. Hair, <laughs> beard, beanie? Like, how do you dress up? No, initially, my hair, my hair was longer than yours. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it just naturally got these beautiful curls in it. The girls at the police department go, do you curl your hair? No, honey, that just happens naturally type of thing. <laughs> But what I found out is that I was actually more effective if I just looked like the average guy. Mm-hmm. So I was I was the 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 insurance broker. I was the you know uh, adjuster, and you know, hey, I'm looking for someone to score a little weed with, or a little cocaine with, or some LSD. If and if you look like you just belong in plain sight, you can hide in plain sight. And I was I was pretty successful at it. It worked out really well. Interesting. Sounds scary. It had its moments. It had its moments. But you know what? By the grace of God, we all went home at the end of the day with the same number of holes we started our day with in our body. So it, it was okay. It was yep. okay. Yeah. Um, but I know I know it's tough. I, I, I know also from Ed, you've talked about that. Being uh, law enforcement is not, not an easy career. Um, interesting that you wanted to do that since you were a little kid. Any of your grandkids want to do that? Well, I'm doing everything not right. I've got one that, that's expressed an interest, but I'm doing everything in my power to talk him out of it. Oh. And, Get a big uh, stick. I, I just don't think in today's climate, I, don't get me wrong, we need good people in law enforcement more than ever. 
we need people there for the right reason. But, you know, when you start talking about your own flesh and blood and, and the reality of today's world and the perception that folks have about law enforcement, I don't want him within a thousand miles of the profession. And that's sad for somebody that grew up only wanting to be a cop and, and fulfill that dream to now feel like you don't want your grandchild to go walk in your footsteps. But hopefully uh, th this climate that's, that currently exists in this country, we've got to get back to a point of civility and respect. And, and even though we might have divergent views, we can have this discourse uh, civilly and we're not there. And, and it, it, it pains me to see this country continue to be fractured along a lot of lines on a lot of issues and, and lacking the ability to sit down and have honest discussion about real problems that are affecting real people in this country. And this is one of those topics that we need to have a real discussion about. Uh, and we can't seem to do that with the discourse that, that currently exists in this country. That, that is really sad because I'm starting to hear that people for my profession, again, like you have been an emergency physician for over 30 years, and I now I'm seeing articles about, you know, emergency medicine is a dumpster fire and all these negative things about the profession. It's like, what, hey, I think it's a, you know, you can't negatively talk about your own profession, especially when it's good. And same, I think, for law enforcement. Well, Tell you guys hit critical mass with COVID. Yeah. You know, for the healthcare industry as a whole, for what happened over the last few years associated with COVID and SARS, I just, you know, you wonder why people aren't more burned out than what they say they are. You know, you look at the staffing, the shift work and the hours that you all put in. Uh, God bless you guys for doing it. I don't I don't think it's any different than, than law enforcement and it hasn't changed. It's always been hard. I mean, um, and that's why we chose emergency medicine. We didn't choose it. You know, I could have been a radiologist, you know, sipping coffee in a dark room, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, like I this. The, the difference are people still respect and appreciate what you do yes. and why you do it. I think there's been a a 180 degree shift on, on that perception of, and of what cops do and why they do it. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, I, I really think that uh, in today's society, the uh, when you're looking at law enforcement as a profession, that a lot of uh, agencies have, have lowered standards and uh, are, are are just grasping for bodies instead of putting quality people in uh, in these positions, irrespective of the uh, the numbers then, you know, you get what you pay for is the old adage we say here. And, and you know, it doesn't take but a couple of instances. And then that 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 whole dynamic shift around perception of, of a profession. But I don't think there's ever been a time where people don't appreciate what you're doing in the ED and what doctors do across this country. And uh, but we've seen that perspective change in, in law enforcement. And uh, we've got to get that that back towards center mass here. Yeah. It, it could be iffy in emergency medicine as well, but uh, but I do appreciate that. All right. Origins of NMI, National Marijuana Initiative. You told you kind of told us it started in California, but tell us about the organization. What are your objectives? Where, where do you hope to achieve um, with NMI? We are one of the four national initiatives that support our 33 HIDAs across the country. And as I stated, 
It originated in the San Diego Imperial Valley, Haida, with a focus on outdoor public lands grow, trespass grows on public lands. Uh, that morphed in 14 uh, to taking a look at the impact. So along with the other three national initiatives, well, I'll give a shout out to ORS, the Overdose Response Strategy, Domestic Highway Enforcement, and the National Emerging Trends Initiative. We are the marijuana subject matter experts for the Haida community. And essentially what, and Dale's already stated, we're trying to replace 30 years of misinformation, disinformation, myths around today's marijuana with evidence-based science research data on the real impacts of legalization, either medically or uh, commercial adult use. You notice we don't use the term recreational marijuana. We've kind of taken that out of our out of our uh, lexicon there because you know when we talk about at least in Kentucky, I don't know about you folks in California, but in Kentucky when you speak of recreation, it's hiking, biking, hunting, boating, fishing, and, and it's doing things that 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 enhance the the mind, the body, and the spirit. And getting high as a Georgia pine ain't one of those things. So it's commercial adult use marijuana. Uh, the, we don't. Uh, utilize the industry term recreational because really there's nothing recreational about it. So that's essentially, Dale, chime in there. That's essentially what we're trying to do is is provide our and our, our clientele primarily of the 700 plus drug-free community coalitions across the country in addition to the five or 600 prevention alliances in this country is to provide them with the information and the educational tools they need to go out and reach their constituency. Um, Dale, maybe you could tell us some of the specific programs that you do, like this Bukers Bureau that you got me to be part yeah. of. So this was a brainchild that Ed had before I joined the program. <clears throat> we realized that we're limited by our own capacities, right? So Ed knows a great deal about marijuana. I know a great deal about marijuana. I don't know a thing about marijuana as it applies to medicine. I don't know a thing about marijuana as it applies to suicide. I, we need the people who walk those paths and understand those paths to share their story, to share their information. And so that was kind of the impetus behind it. You know, we start off with one or two speakers, and then as we're exposed to more people who are willing to talk about marijuana and understand the science, the research, and the technology behind it, all of a sudden our speakers bureau began to evolve and morph. So now we've got some 18, almost 20 different speakers that speak from different disciplines, everything from pharmaceutical to your community, the medical community, to a law enforcement approach, but more importantly, we're getting the diversity. We've got speakers that talk about the, the addiction. We're talking about the psychology behind addiction. We're talking about mothers who have lost children to suicide as a result of their child's marijuana use. And what we're finding is, is that it has a great appeal to audiences because, again, it's not two old guys talking about you know weed. And the one thing that Ed and I never do, we don't approach this from demon weed, reefer madness. If you're going to smoke this, you're going to go blind. None of our speakers do that. It's here's the facts. All the facts are sight sort. So now you can go back and you can fact check it. The bottom line is, if we put good information in front of people, they can make informed decisions. And to us, that, that's critical. You know, if you're going to choose to smoke it, that's up to you. But be aware of the risk and inherent hazards that go along with it. If you want to legalize it, okay, you, you're, you can make those choices. But be aware of the consequences that we're seeing now after 10 years of legalization across this country, the consequences that we're seeing that are repeating in jurisdictions over and over and over again. 
you know, if you go into it with your eyes wide open, I think maybe you make better decisions. And the beauty about our speakers bureau, if we send one of our speakers to an event, let's say that you're hosting, they don't cost you a thing. We pay their travel, we pay their airfare, we pay their per diem. You know, some of these guys take time off of their jobs and have to take PTO, personal leave time. Uh, some ask for mod- a very modest uh, honorarium to do this. You know, we allow that. It's a personal agreement between the host agency and our speaker. But we cover the vast majority of the expenses usually associated to honorariums. So it's a great way to be a force multiplier to get the information out and to come at it from just a myriad of different directions. And what the nice thing about this is, Renee, when we do these presentations and our speakers do these presentations, you talk to folks afterwards, it's usually the common theme of, you know, I never have heard this before. How come nobody tells us these things before? So it's a great way to look at one issue from different angles. It's it's just a great approach. It's a great force multiplier. And like Ed said, our drug-free communities, our anti-drug coalitions, State legislative bodies, they, they're the ones that come out ahead on this because they're getting unfiltered, unbiased information. It's just facts. And, you decide what you, you're going to do with it. And as you know, Ron, our, our, our speakers, as Dale said, a force multiplier, but they're actually able to go on to uh, and, and do things that we couldn't do. And, you know, you you were on Dr. Phil. And, uh, you know, the reach that in that message, you know, Doc, Lord, the Ingram angle, the new, they, we've had our speakers interviewed in New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Uh, they, they've been on CNN. I mean, the reach in their message is on about every medium available. And uh, it's amazing that it started out in 2015 with one individual and it's morphed to almost 20 now. Uh, we're about capacity with our budget. Uh, to fund travel. But, you know, when we look at what we're trying to accomplish, and that's getting the message out about the reality about what's going on with today's marijuana and legalization, uh, our our Speakers Bureau is our greatest asset. And again, as Dale, they're free. You, know, you can't beat that deal from the government. What do you get free from the government? You know, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I am really honored to be to be part of that Speakers Bureau. And I think I met you um, at a Haida directors meeting in Washington, D.C., where I kind of spoke. I mentioned scrometing. Some of the Haida directors call me now Dr. Scrometing. But you were at a little booth there and said, well, you need to join our Speaker Bureau. And I'm like, OK. You're exactly <laughs> right. And, and after we listened to you in, in the national conference in D.C., I said, I told we got to we got to get this doc right here because you know you were not only you know were you forceful about your message your passion but you're extremely knowledgeable about what's going on with today's marijuana and you did coin that term scrometing too so you know that's that's something to have you know on your tombstone at the end of the day that I'm responsible <laughs> for for coining the term scrometing for, for for publicizing it that's for sure yeah, yeah. remember no do, good deed ever goes unpunished goes unpunished right. <laughs> It actually is the greatest thing I've done in a career because it changed uh, patient perspective. Because for years, I would say, you have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And then patients would be like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you're, you're, you know, they wouldn't believe me. And if I say you're scrometing, they're like, I guess I am, you know, and they'd look it up and they find out about it. So I just, you know, I think what Dylan and I well, found out, one of the things that we're also proud about is our intern, pharmacy intern program, Ronnie. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Rutgers and uh, and the other names. Jefferson. 
Uh, Jefferson. Jefferson. Oh, gosh, that's what old age will get to you. Uh, but one <laughs> of the things that we found out with, we're now on our 11th intern, is not only, uh, as Dale says all the time, one of the, if there's anything good ever come out of legalization, it's, it's research. We currently have more research in the pipeline, not only on the potential benefits of, of cannabinoids as, as a medicinal property, but also, unfortunately, on more so on the harmful consequences. But what we found by talking to these interns is even within your profession, and I, I don't want to use this term, but the lack of awareness yeah. around today's marijuana. And it's one of the reasons that you guys started Isaac's. It's physicians educating physicians on the reality of, of today's cannabis. But we were shocked at the level of, of lack of understanding and awareness around today's marijuana in the medical community. Yeah, it, it, it still it, exists, it unfortunately. Um, and uh, will for a while. And it, anyway. it will for a while because uh, if I, I came to all this because of the opioid epidemic, the opioid prescription epidemic, where physicians were um, the, the drivers and the source of why people were dying from opioids. And it took a long while for the medical community to to understand that they were part of the problem, including myself. So I've actually was one of the first to do that. So to see that, that um, without a, even a public awareness, the medical community is not first. We, we think we are because we're like the doctors and the scientists, but we, we don't. We follow the herd um, on a lot of issues. So speaking of medical school, the medical community, I have a question to you from a medical student, uh, uh, which is uh, really great. Uh, Joseph is a now fourth year medical student going into, oh, and I was just making fun of his future profession, his radiology. Um, <laughs> so, um, if you can drink coffee in a dark room and get paid well for doing that, <laughs> why not? I tell him that. I told my daughters that. Just go do radiology. Do exactly what you're doing now, Dale. I see you drinking coffee. And then you could go like, this is my imitation of a radiologist. This is terrible. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm Irish. This is tea. My, my, my imitation of a radiologist is sitting in a dark room, um, drinking coffee, looking at a screen, and going like this. Normal. Five hundred dollars. I told you we stood in the wrong lines. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, anyway, Joseph is asking: marijuana is legal now in almost all the states. It's legal. It's not a big deal. Um, we know that you know the medical community needs to step up its game as far as acknowledging the harms, documenting the harms. Um, but what's the point of law enforcement? Why is law enforcement still involved um, if it's really legal? Well, Ed, go for it. Well, I, I can tell you that, you know, when you start looking at this from that standpoint, when you've got 22 states that have legalized for commercial adult use and 37 plus the district for medical, uh, regardless of, of where you are in that con conundrum there, uh, there is still the illicit market. And trust me, the illicit market is alive and well. It is in your state and all the way up the Pacific Northwest. Any state that has done this has done a horrible job, including Dale State, yep. of regulating this industry. So why we're still there, even though it might be legal for somebody 21 in his state to buy for commercial adult use or 18 with a card, uh, 
there is still a vibrant, illicit market. What legalization has done with this drug is allowed those engaged in the illicit market the ability, particularly in a home growth state, to hide in plain sight. And give you an example, Ronnie, to how bad it is in the state just to your north, Oregon. And the last two years, they spent almost $22 million in taxpayer money trying to get rid of the illicit market. They eradicated almost a half a million plants, 490, I mean, 1.3 million plants, almost a half a million pounds of processed marijuana. That's on the illicit side. So that's why we're involved, because it doesn't matter whether you legalize this substance medically or commercial adult use. Nobody has done an effective job of regulating this industry uh, much. Well, we still in Kentucky, we still have folks from the Northeast coming down here, buying our cheaply taxed cigarettes, taking them to New York and New Jersey and selling them for a huge profit. So yep. you're never going to get rid of that market. And as long as that is there, then law enforcement has to play a role at trying to curtail. If you want to see a train wreck right now, on a medical side, go to the state of Oklahoma yes. and look at that. When you're starting looking at drug trafficking organizations that are moving in, particularly Chinese national drug trafficking organizations, moving into a state, taking over a state and an industry, uh, that's why we're involved. You know, it doesn't matter whether you legalize substance, this substance, there's still going to be that market available and the illicit markets alive and well in every state that has done so. What are the harms? Explain to me the harms of the illicit market. So it's like, okay, what's the difference of, you know, legal weed and illicit weed? I mean, somebody who's listening to that saying, okay, so you spent $22 million. It sounds like a waste. Why do you spend $22 million in, in Oregon um, to get rid of weed? Like, who cares? Well, you know, Dale, talk about tax. Why, why do they do this? That's that's the bottom line here. It's, you know, People want to have social equity issues about this, you know, and when it gets right down to it, this is not a black thing. It's not a brown thing. It's a green thing. It's about money. And really, when it gets down to it, the, the, the market has changed. This is no longer about the legalization of the plant as a medical component. Okay, This is no longer about the legalization of the plant as a, quote, recreational product. Right. We, we have gone so far past this. We're not about legalization of the plant. This is about the commercialization of THC purely for profit. That's why we see potency levels of these profit, you know, the, the concentrates would have up to 60, 70, 80, 90% potency of THC. You know, we, we use the analogy that today's THC is to marijuana what crack was to cocaine, what ice was to meth, okay? If you want a, a, a more basic analysis, kids are initiating on Everclear versus stealing the beer out of dad's refrigerator out in the garage. That's really what we're talking about. That's the evolution. And where the money comes into this is I can walk into Ronit's dispensary here in Colorado. I can buy my commercially available weed. I pay the tax on it, which is now up to about 30%. Or the guy down the street says, hey, I'll save the exact same product and you don't have to pay any tax on it. So even when you get the guy in the business that says, yeah, I can sell you this, but if you want to meet me in the alley in 20 minutes, I can get you a pound of this stuff. All these little incidents of diversion are taking place. So that's how the black market is thriving. There is a high demand for this product out there. And the black market is filling that gap about, yeah, we'll sell it to you, but you're not going to pay any more money. Just, just pay us for the raw weed. And people are willing to do that. And the scary thing is, in both cases, you're really not sure what's in that stuff. Yep. 
You're not sure about the potency. You're not sure about co-contamination. You're not sure about, you know, what pesticides did you use? What herbicides did you use? What fungicides did you use? Well, I think so, the story today came out of uh, fentanyl found in marijuana. In we, the marijuana we've seen fund. that several times. Yeah. And we hear that. And it, it, it's still kind of living in that Bigfoot category. You know, marijuana laced with fentanyl. Dogs and cats are living together. Film at 11. Well, what we're not sure is, are they intentional adulterations of marijuana with fentanyl or are they accidental contaminations because a lot of these organizations sell more than one product it's yeah. diversifying so yeah i'm selling weed over here but i'm also selling cocaine here and these guys are also you know handling fentanyl so when i'm putting that bag of weed together was there something on my hands did something get co-contaminated who knows T to me the the investment, the taxpayer investment in $22 million in Oregon on the illegal market is because I don't think people understand that illegal grows destroy the land with pesticides, oh, yeah. destroy animals, um, and it's it's like an oil spill, um, but uh, but uh, on on public lands and the crime that's associated with it and cost of life, um, it's, it could be, you know— uh, yeah. illegal drug deals can be, you know, uh, well, your, your state has been in and your public lands. You have the largest, uh, share of, of public lands in the nation that reside in the state of California. And for years, drug trafficking organizations, particularly, uh, Mexican national drug trafficking organizations have, have basically usurped the public lands in the state of California and to a lesser extent, Oregon and Washington, they brought uh, basically human trafficking. They brought uh, workers over. Uh, they are decimating, destroying uh, our nation's public lands. If you go to any of these trespass grow sites uh, on the Pacific Northwest, if you've never been to one, you, you need to look at, at the work that uh, that IERC Dr. Greta Wingart uh, is doing and, and look at some of that uh those videos of, and we've got one of them on our website. It, it's just, you know, I don't care what your politics is on weed. If you look at what these people are doing to our public lands, you would be appalled at, at the, the level of destruction, environmental impact that is, that is, and then when you start talking about, you already mentioned, you know, uh, carbofurans, a ban, mm -hmm. a ban pesticide, in the 70s that the EPA banned carbofurans are routinely found uh, neurotoxin that's routinely found on trespass roads uh, in California, Oregon, and Washington. And we don't know if that stuff is actually reaching the commercial market in California. We suspect it might be. Uh, I don't think uh, your state's doing a very good job at testing. As for that matter, I don't think anybody's doing a very good chart job at testing to determine the the accuracy not only of potency but also what's in there are, are the microbials the mold the fungi the heavy metals all the other stuff that might actually be in this product i don't think anybody's do and there are no national standards there for for a, a state to follow what 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 is an accepted level of heavy metals in a product you know that's the problem when you don't I, have a I, I actually think we have a standard um, and I learned that from one of your, you know, one of your connections, Dr. L. Soli. We have a standard in order yes. to sell marijuana for research, right? 
And actually, yes, a lot, all, all these marijuana industry, you know, growers wanted to be in on this to sell it, and they could not meet the standard because you yeah. cannot have heavy metals and pesticides in your weed when you're using it for research. Right. Um, so, and uh, the difference between what El Soli does in his grows compared to what's out there in both the illegal and illicit groves is night and day as far as standards. I, I agree. But, you know, when you start talking about the standards, you're right. You can't reach them. They can't reach them. They don't want to reach them because they can't reach them. And that's a huge problem because the consumer really doesn't know. Number one, if I'm paying high dollar for top shelf marijuana, am I really getting top shelf marijuana, high yep. potency product? Then number two, what the heck am I actually putting into my body? What is contained within this substance that I'm either inhaling, ingesting. Uh, is it free of contaminants? Is it free of pesticides? Is it free of heavy metals? They just don't know. I can almost assure you it probably isn't. Yeah, and I, I think we can, uh, I don't know why we can't just prove it, but uh, if you go to a legal dispensary, you're probably buying they probably have in there illicitly grown uh, marijuana just because there's so much of it. Uh, that, that, the likelihood is probably strong. We don't know that for sure. But I, I, if I was a betting person, I'd probably say that that exists in, in states that, that allow home grows. And, and for your matter in your state where the last time I saw that only, only about a quarter of your industry was actually under uh, state compliance. So you have about three quarters of your industry that's operating outside of state compliance. And that's pretty alarming right there. Right. Uh, what's alarming is that they don't care. <laughs> yeah. um, well, okay. The industry is concerned right now. You know, we went through the dot-com bubble years back. And right now the industry is going through their own dot-com bubble. The, the price per gram of weed has continued to kind of decline over the course of years. I mean, yeah, from what it was, let's say ten years ago, we're down some sixty to seventy percent. You know, from the what it was costing per gram them to what they're getting now. So that cuts into profitability. Uh, there was a survey that came out that looked at the Oregon market, and what was I thought was amazing was only twenty five percent of the people from the industry said, "Yeah, we're actually making money." So. <laughs> This is, you know, three out of four companies out there said they're operating in the red because they can't keep up with it. There's too much demand. There's too much overstocking. There's too much surplus. They can't meet the taxes. They can't hire and retain a workforce. They've cut money down to the bare bones and there's just nothing left. So while the cost per gram for raw flour is going down, sadly, the cost per gram for concentrate, it's going up. Right. So tell us a more about the industry. I know the industry uh, is competing with the uh, alcohol industry as far as uh, sales and acceptability. And, and in some places, there's more dispensaries, um, uh, shops, pot shops than Starbucks in the area. Uh, is it a lucrative business? Is this uh, the, the, the green rush instead of the gold rush to, to get into this? I don't think it is what they thought it was going to be. Maybe in the beginning, but because there's such a proliferation of the industry out there, I mean, it's like any market that deals with uh, a, a commodity that people want. If, if I'm the only dispensary in town, I can name my own prices. But as soon as you open up, now I've got town competition. And now I got Ed and I got Dave and everybody else is sitting there. And what happens is, is I, I have to bring my prices down to stay competitive. 
but I still have overhead to meet. And then Ed does the same thing. Then you bring your prices down. And finally, what we do is we work ourselves into a position that it's just not feasible. I mean, we're seeing major companies pulling out of markets just because taxation, cost of doing business, overhead, they're just not making the money they thought they were going to make on this. You know, this this is kind of like the, the old pyramid scheme. If you're going to get in on it, get in on the ground floor and be at the bottom where all the money's going to be. But now there's so much of it out there. I don't think the return on the investment is going to be there. But unfortunately, nobody's really tracking that information at the governmental level. You know, we can tell you how much flour we sold and how much concentrate we sold. But unless you know what it's costing the state to do business, how do you determine if you're making a, a, a decision that's going to be in the red or the black when it comes to legalization? Sadly, I think a lot of these companies are realizing the money isn't there. They just didn't think it was going to crash out this fast. And I think the alcohol model is one that that will end yeah. up ultimately seeing play out with the marijuana industry. And that's five or six huge conglomerates that will control the market. And much as you see these microbreweries locally, <clears throat> that if one starts to succeed, one of the bigger companies goes in, swoops it up. So I think what we're going to end up and when it's all said and done, that there'll be just a handful of uh, companies or entities that actually control a vast majority of the marijuana market, much as we see with the five or six big uh, alcoholic beverage conglomerates that are controlling most of the market share. And country. tobacco. And tobacco, for that matter, too. Yeah. And it's the same people, actually, right? And it's the same people. And, and you <laughs> already start to see an infusion of the alcohol industry into the cannabis industry. And uh, so, and and for that matter, uh, I, I think also, unfortunately, I think there's also the playbook on how to survive litigation that's eventually coming. Uh, much as the tobacco industry, when you saw prior to the litigation in the 70s and 80s that uh, resulted in uh, a lot of tobacco companies going bankrupt, you saw a consolidation and only the strong survived. There's also a playbook on how to survive litigation. Yeah, they're going to pony up a lot of money, but at the end, they're going to come out a lot leaner and uh, they're they're going to survive it, unfortunately. So you know, unfortunately, I hope it doesn't take us the 75 years it took without uh, tobacco to get to that epiphany moment that this was a bad thing We that in yeah. this country. I, I'm hoping that we get there faster than Americans wake up and realize that this is another addiction industry that is seeking to profit off the misery of addicted individuals in this country. Yeah, so interesting. Um we were talking about money and, and how to track that. I, I wanted to ask you, aren't governments tracking that? Like California doesn't want to do anything against the marijuana industry. Last year, we tried to have a, a bill to put labels on products like we have labels on tobacco and alcohol. And we even have labels before you watch a movie that, you know, be careful. You're going to see some flashing lights. We're all into yep. warning labels, right? They would not do warning labels on marijuana products. Um, and this year we're trying to pass a, um, a candy ban, like because all the babies we thought, okay, you don't care about adults. Maybe you'll care about babies who are getting poison. We'll see if that passes. But I think the government and our governor is all, you know, follow the money. They're thinking they're going to strike it big with tax revenue from the cannabis industry. Um, and that's what's being promised. So we should know that data. Or is, is that... Is that panning out? You take a look at the money that our state here in Colorado is bringing in. You know, we, we started off just for history. 
We started off with a medical model back in 2000. It was on the books for the elections and it passed. And then it just kind of sat benign. It just it, it really didn't do much for the first seven, eight, nine years. You know, we had at one point less than 5000 people on the registry as being a medical marijuana patient. All right. So then flash forward, the state and local cops and jurisdictions aren't doing anything. Then the feds announced the Ogden memo back in 09. And they basically said in that, in that memo, hey, if, if, if you're a federal prosecutor and you're, you're thinking about using federal resources to go out for a marijuana violator that's in compliance with state and local laws, it's not going to happen. So the impression was, well, state and local guys aren't doing anything. The feds aren't going to do anything. And then the floodgates kind of opened up. And this is where we first saw the real surge in proliferation of people coming in and open up businesses thinking they're going to strike it rich. Well, as time has progressed on, we've saturated the market like we just talked about. And prices are coming down and people are trying to adjust it. So the money initially looked really good. And keep in mind, you know, in two years ago, we brought in, we were bringing in like $1.1, $1.2 million a day in Colorado in tax revenue. That's a chunk of change. I mean, that, that's like what a, a, an ERED doc makes in the course of a year. I get that. But, you know, us, us poor folks, and we just don't see that kind of money. This last year, those revenues have gone down because prices have gone down. We're now bringing in less than $900,000 a day in tax revenue. <clears throat> Still a chunk of change. That's the number that people take a look at in other states and go, wow, look at Colorado. Look how much money they're bringing in. What they don't realize is that this is a, a state that's based on tourism. It's the novelty factor. We were the first state to legalize. Well, now as more states have gone down the, the path of legalization here, why should I go to Colorado to buy my weed and take a vacation there when I can just go down the street to my local dispensary? So that's why we're seeing a tapering off here, too. The culture is changing. The times are changing. And as a result, the money potential is changing. But still, politicians see those tax dollars and think this is going to be the solution to everybody's woes. And it just is not. It just right. is not. Nobody's tracking what it's costing on a daily basis for us to do business. And I think you can probably take a look at uh, the alcohol, tobacco mm -hmm. numbers. You know, we've got a rich history, and that's one of the problems here with marijuana. We've got a rich history on cost-benefit analysis between both alcohol and tobacco, and we know they're losing propositions yep. in both cases. Uh, and as we now, uh, last year, broached the 50 million mark for admitted marijuana users during the past year, as those numbers continue to climb, I can't help but believe that we're going to get close uh, to those numbers. It's not going to be even a revenue neutral substance because alcohol and tobacco aren't. They cost society significantly. Right now, you've got to understand, you know, we're 10 years into this quote unquote legalized commercial adult use model. We've just not been there long enough to actually have some definitive numbers on what it's costing for every tax dollar we're making, what it's costing society. But we know, and you see it in your ED, uh, we see it on our nation's highways. Marijuana continues to play a more prevalent role with either THC-induced psychosis, impaired driving, a host of issues that we're just now starting to get some significant data on to where we might be able to make some definitive uh, conclusions on a cost-benefit analysis there. But we're just not there yet. We tried to do that a couple of years ago in Colorado. Uh, we commissioned or sent an, an RFP out, 
Uh, nobody even replied to it. We worked with one of the leading addiction economists in this nation to, to, to he wrote it for us. And he basically told us probably uh, you're not going to get anybody because you're just too early in this game to try to figure out. But all anybody sees, like Dale says, oh, at the bottom line, we're going to we're making a million dollars a day in tax revenue. But you have no idea what it's costing your state, your local community, your city, your county as a result of this decision. And we're probably 10 years away from getting some definitive answers there, unfortunately. Well, I don't see us looking into the quality and I'm kind of following the alcohol model. Um, when when we had prohibition, people were, you know, moonshining and putting methanol in the alcohol and people were dying um, from that. Um, and, and when alcohol became regulated, uh, that went away. People are not, you know, drinking a beer and dying and going blind from methanol anymore. Right now, the marijuana that's out there, again, high potency, fungus, pesticides, um, even states that are, have it legal, they're not regulating. Consumers are not aware of their a heavy metal contamination of the product they're consuming. Do you see a future where marijuana will be like alcohol and where consumers can count on um, the regulation to make it safer? Kind of like alcohol is safer. Well, I'll jump in first, Dale, and you can, if we're going to continue down this path, because where we are today, Ronnie, is where we were in this country prior to the inception of the FDA, when states were left to regulate the food, the drugs, the cosmetics within their confines. And that's the reason that the FDA came into play is the fact that there was inconsistent regulations. There was inconsistent application of regulations. So if we're going to go continue to go down this road, there has to be some sort of intervention, most likely at the federal level, where we set specific standards. There is a body of testing at the federal level that accepts and approves these products. That much is, you know, my state's famous for bourbon. As And when you look at how highly regulated the bourbon industry is, that I know that when Dale gets a bottle of, of Blanton's in, in Colorado, it's the same bottle of Blanton's that's in New Jersey. That does not exist. The marijuana in Colorado, I don't know what's in it as opposed to the marijuana in, Jer in New Jersey because that just doesn't exist today. And I already alluded to, nobody's done a good job. Nobody's even done an, a, a very, I mean, goods even being nice. Nobody's done an average job at, at regulating this product in any shape, form, or fashion. Well, I, I, I think if babies come on a regular basis to the hospital and, and, and are overdosing and in a coma in ICU, um, and if and on a daily basis we see cannabis-induced psychosis and the public has no idea, then, yeah, we failed. Totally yeah. Well, I give you an example. Last year, 28 second graders in in an elementary school in Jefferson County went to the hospital because an, a second grader brought in edible products from his mother that she purchased legally in, a, in an adjoining state. And they were all hospitalized because they ate all these edibles. And, and you know, we never heard a word of that. That's the problem. Yeah. Is you, that, that information is hidden. Is hidden. It's not being made public. You know, I think it's interesting, though, that that in the last couple of weeks, I've seen more 
traction even in CNN, which is you know is not you're not uh, about some of the negative consequences of legalization. And I think we're starting to see the window open to some dialogue and discourse about where we are today. But unfortunately, I, I fear that we're several years away for, from honest discussion about what's going on in your ED at Scripps, what's going on in, in Bill Lynch's ED in New Jersey, uh, that these we need this information needs to get out. Hey, look, this is happening not once a week, but this is happening two and three times a day every shift in hospitals across the country. And nobody wants to talk about this. And, you know, and, and Libby Stout said, you know, th this mental health crisis that it is being brought up on by high potency marijuana is probably the greatest mental health crisis that nobody in this country wants to talk about that we're currently dealing with quietly. You aren't, but the people that are tasked with regulating this industry don't want to acknowledge it and don't want to speak about it. Yeah. And and you take a a, a risk just to speak out about that. I mean, I, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> you know, as soon as you speak up against it, you're vilified. You yeah. know, if this was the Wizard of Oz in the movie, yeah. okay, Toto is just now starting to pull the drape back to revolve that the wizard is actually just a guy. Yeah. And slowly but surely, the curtain's getting pulled back on the concept of the industry, the concept of legalization. And we're starting to see the facts. And the good thing about it, this goes back to what we've already said. Has anything good come out of legalization? Yeah, we're getting a lot better research. The other good thing that came out of this is people are asking better questions yes. and they're demanding better answers, not not rhetoric or hype, but they're demanding better answers that are based in scientific fact based proof evidence. So. Yeah, it, it's a case, like I said, if we're in the movie, the dog's just pulling back the curtain a little bit, but it's going to take a long time to get that curtain pulled all the way back. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard these days because you'll read articles, and I think it's really hard for the public or even medical community to know fact from fiction because I'll just read an article saying, but marijuana is good for multiple sclerosis and for seizures sure. and for this, and it's like, no, it's not. Who said who said that? I mean, the data doesn't prove that. No one. Never let the but, truth but, but get in the way just... of a good story. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So government's trying to do something about it. Biden-Harris administration, um, HSS, uh, Health and Human Services, is thinking about scheduling marijuana. Um, is, is that an answer? Is that a good answer? I think one of the things I got out of talking to you today is if – I don't think marijuana is going away, right? We can agree – Agreed. That it's going to be there. Uh, we all agree that, you know, the uh, public needs to be informed on the harm so they can make informed decisions because it's not going to go away. But if we wanted to make marijuana at least safer, um, then it, we need FDA to step in and they can't because it's now illegal. So um, is scheduling marijuana uh, a good idea? Should it should it be scheduled that way? FDA steps in and does their job like they do for food and cosmetics and alcohol, right? You were saying that alcohol became safer and people weren't going blind for methanol when FDA um, came in and created standards. Well, well so when you, you got to put it in perspective. Yeah. To understand where we're at, you got to understand that marijuana has always been classified as a scheduled one controlled substance. By definition, no accepted medical use in the United States, even under the care of a doctor. All right. 
So I attended a conference a few years back, and it was a marijuana conference. And the two things that had the tongues wagging and the most concern was, one, the feds were going to step in, and two, they would reschedule marijuana down to a two, a three, or four, or five, okay? They either want it left as a schedule one where it's at or take it completely off the books altogether. Once you move it down in a schedule of two, three, four, or five, you're now talking about a class of drug that has to be administered by prescription by a pharmacist. Right now, there's no major medical college that endorses marijuana blindly for a therapeutic agent. There's no school of pharmacy that I'm aware of that teaches, yeah, we need to use marijuana as a therapeutic agent in patient care. So by moving it down, all you're going to do is if that happens, you know, you're turning dispensaries into pharmacies and a lot of these dispensaries are going to close. So that's why the industry is so concerned about it. They would rather just leave things as it is or take it completely off the books so that they've got full control over it. Yes. So is scheduling a good or bad idea? I the, the problem I have with the scheduling marijuana um, is that marijuana is a plant with 500 different chemicals. Many of the chemicals, we don't know what they are. So how can it's like legalizing all 500 that you didn't even know? It doesn't make sense. The science isn't there yet. We don't have the scientific basis to make that decision. I, I think actually we, we do. We have an example of what happened with the farm bill and the Delta uh, 8 and 9 right. products. They're saying that that's marijuana, right? And that would be legal. So it's okay now to prescribe Delta 8 marijuana that we know that has killed people. Well, and here's the problem. You know, the, the conundrum we deal with with this drug is the fact that if I stand up here and I tell you the the 114 plus cannabinoids within marijuana, the plant, the cannabis sativa L plant, there is nothing of medical value there. I'm lying to you. Yep. But if I stand up here and also say that crude marijuana, either smoked or ingested, is medicine and a medical delivery device, I'm also lying to you. What we need to do and what we should be scheduling is the different cannabinoids, cannabidiols, cannabinoids within marijuana that have medical value that much as we've done with epidiolects. When epidiolex got put through the FDA clinical trials, and in 2018, the FDA approved it in July, September, the DEA rescheduled it to a two, then moved it to a five. Now it's off the schedule altogether, but it still requires a doctor's prescription and a pharmacist to, to dispense it. That's what we need to be doing. You can't just take the whole plant itself. And as you said, 500 compounds, 114 cannabinoids and say, this is now a schedule two. The, right. the science doesn't support it. Digoxin is a scheduled drug, but the oleander plant, uh, where which uh, digoxin comes from, is not something that you scheduled. You can't schedule a plant with all sorts yeah. of, it, it doesn't make sense. Exactly. But how, okay, so, so the scheduling thing, Probably uh, not a good idea, both by the supporters and opponents of marijuana for different reasons. One of, one of the biggest things on scheduling, which got relieved in the last Congress, was the Medical Marijuana Research Act that that Biden signed into law last December. That actually, one of the, the things that, that researchers and everybody clamor about, well, we can't do research because it's Schedule 1. Well, this act re- removes most of the onus barriers that are attributed to doing research to a schedule one. So from that standpoint, now it's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper to re, re do legitimate research without scheduling that from a scientific standpoint or a medical point. We're not doctors, we're cops, but how do you 
schedule a plan. Right. That was the point. You just can't do it. So I, I don't I don't think people for the who are, you know, into the industry um, are into the research because the research would go. It's not going to say, OK, put this marijuana plant on your eyeball and cure your glaucoma. <laughs> they're going to they're going to say we're going to get the THC. We're going to make into a solution and we're going to fo follow it in a, in a pharmacy and we're going to sell it as medicine. That's where research is going with the different cannabinoids. The, the research is not um, that's the fallacy. This research is not going, hey, smoke some of this and your glaucoma will go away. Well, and here's another problem with research is you know, let, let's take the labs at University of Mississippi. So Dr. El Salih down there, they do a great job. They're a great group of people. What they are growing for testing is not what's available out in the public marketplace right, right, right now. Right. That was an amazing. It, it has nothing to, they, they are not at all similar. The industry cannot yeah. meet the standard that's required for it to be sold as research for, for people. So again, you're yeah. not even comparing things. It, it's apples and oranges, what, especially and when you get down to potency. Teach us what we learned from alcohol. How did alcohol moonshine with methanol um, uh, become safe or safer? I mean, we still have a lot of problems with alcohol, but at least we know that there's not, you know, uh, poisons and heavy metals when, when, when you buy a beer or a bottle of wine. Well, it's just it goes, it goes back to standards. Yes. Ed, you, you know about moonshining. You're from your neck of the woods. Go for it. <laughs> Wait, and your grandfather did that, right? Yes, yes, they, they may be there, but okay. you know, the bottom line is shiny. If you don't take that first cut off, that's you're exactly that's methanol, and that stuff will kill you. But it's it's actually the application of consistent, accepted standards throughout the industry that are more importantly, that are enforced rigorously that allow us to consume alcohol across the spectrum, whether it be beer, wine, or heavy spirits with the same level of consistency, knowing that this is what's in the, what the bottle says is in there is what's in there. The percent of alcohol by volume is exactly right because they know in the bourbon industry, if they come in and you say that you're at this percent and you're 1% over, you lose the whole batch. So there is rigorous enforcement of standards that allow us to consume that those that choose to consume alcohol consume it safely. If you consume it safely and responsibly, then you're going to be okay. The problem is that's their standards and they're rigorously enforced across the continuum. Whether you make bourbon in Colorado or you make bourbon in Kentucky, the same rigorous standards apply and they're enforced to the same level. That doesn't occur with marijuana. I think that that's a really, really important lesson. Um, it, when we look at bills going through Congress about marijuana legalization, is that caveat in there, or are they just getting a free plus to do whatever to, to sell heavy metals? Is there is the, if the government is going to legalize marijuana, um, is there a contingency in there for that for that standardization? Nothing that I have seen on the Hill has any contingency for assuring the safety of the product that they're seeking to legalize. That's kind of the conundrum with federal legislation right now. They're trying to get it over the, the hump to where it's legal, but they're really not having much discussion about what do we do after we do this. 
kind of like we got to do it together you can't do it one at a time exactly matter of fact you should be on the front side of what it's going to look like before you even do it so that when you do it here are the standards here are the protocols and here's how we're going to enforce it here's what's going to happen to you should you be outside of these standards and protocols that does not exist in any legislation i've read at the federal level and, and that's where I think also the the public is is just not aware. They um, think, well, marijuana has been legal in California for you know since 1996, um, and we have regulations, so they can go to a nice, pretty looking dispensary, and they have no idea that they are not held to these uh, standards. Um, whether whether you're calling it um, you know adult commercial use or medical, same plant with same contaminants and yes. and 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 uh, and without that enforcement. I don't think a lot of people understand that you walk into a dispensary and you see you know OG blueberry Kush on the medical side, and you see OG blueberry Kush on the recreational side. That that came from the same bin in the back. There's nothing magical about the title of medical. It, it's all the same weed. It's just how it's being sold and how it's being marketed. And like Ed said, until the day comes when someone comes in and goes, all right, you want legalization? You got it. But we're taking over. Nationally, one standard. Nationally, one set of rules. Nationally, one set of enforcement guidelines. And everyone's got to play by the rules. And that was one of the ones that that conference I was telling you about. I think it, you you two need to connect with the National Academy of Medicine that's now doing a, a paper on this and, and, and make that, that case. Um, we can inform and educate all day long. Yeah. Can't lobby, but we can inform and educate. Yeah, yeah. I think that that would be an important um, historical science evidence-based message um, to make it safer because I see people talking about, oh, we... I've seen doctors, people who come in scrubbing, saying, okay, well, why don't you change to edibles? And it's like, wait a second. How do you know that that potency of that edible is not more than what they're smoking? It's maybe more. How do you know what that edible even has? People think if it comes in a nice package um, that it's safe. Um, and they don't they don't understand that. Um, and see, Renee, that that goes back to the exact core of what we're talking about. This is why we've got interns from coming through the pharmacy schools. This is why we have a speakers bureau. This is why we spend some too many hours of our lives in airplanes and hotel rooms trying to share this message. I mean, we've we've got a, a virtual presentation coming up in November. It's called the Western States Marijuana Summit. The last time we did it, it was attended by thirty seven states. Uh, nearly 600 people were in attendance over a multiple-day virtual event. I mean, you know what it's like to sit through a 60-minute Zoom presentation. You know, we kept them online for virtually two days. And it's a great way that we can share this information, try to raise the awareness, so people start asking the very questions that you've been asking here for the last hour. You know, it's a chance to inform and educate. And that's the mission. How do we displace the misinformation? We put facts in its place. What a concept. Yeah, yeah. That summit, again, as Dale alluded to, actually is uh, a, a four-day summit. The Western States Marijuana and Opiate Summit yep. occurs this November. Marijuana is 14th and 15th, and the opiate 16th and 17th. You'll be there. We should be having a link shortly for those that want to register. I know from the marijuana side, we have a really good uh, agenda. I'm not. I've not seen the opiate. I know you're presenting, uh, Ronnie, but. Uh, you know, it was a huge success in, in 21, as Dale alluded to, we had over almost 600 people attend from 37 states. So truly it was a national 
summit as opposed to a Western state summit, which is what it originally started out in 15. NMI has been a sponsor of that since uh, the Western states started in 2015. And we're sponsoring it again this year with the uh, San Diego Imperial Vida Haida. That's just one of the things we do. We're also sponsoring the the Midwest Impaired Driving Summit in Itasca, Illinois, uh, November 1st through the 3rd. And I understand you're going to be there too. And I get the privilege of introducing you at your session. <laughs> How cool. So, are you Are you going to call me kiddo? I'm going to call you kiddo. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to call you kiddo. I, but uh, I, I've... I love when you call me kiddo. <laughs> I'm like almost 60 years old. That's just one of the things that, that a couple of things that we do, you know, we're, we're financial sponsors for both these summits is just trying to do whatever we can to get information in the consumer's hands. So they make an informed choice. That's something we have not been doing in this country with respect to marijuana. We've not been making informed choices nope. about this, whether you want to do this or don't do that. And we've got to start doing that. So we're excited about these two upcoming summits. Uh, and uh, it's just part of our mission, who we are and what we do. And, uh, you know, we have a website, thenmi.org. And uh, it's got a host of information. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And uh, I ask people to, uh, I don't know what you're supposed to like us or share us or join us or whatever you do. <laughs> I'm not supposed to make fun of social media. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to that. But but that's the way you reach people now is through these platforms. And uh, and they're finding you. I know medical societies have reached out to you. And, yes. And, and, yes. and so that's that. They're We're finding. getting a lot of traction on our website. I even had people, uh, uh, proponents actually say that, you know, you you really got a balanced site here. It's, I mean, there's not much we can refute about what's on your site. We thought- Here, we Here's were, a word from our sponsor. We were going to see Demon Weed, but we didn't. So, yeah, that's us right there for your folks. Uh, uh, our, our Twitter handles, where we are on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and a link to our website. Uh, so, and- you know, Dale and I, you can find us on the website. If you need us, reach out to us individually. Our contact information is there, and uh, we're more than happy to 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 get you whatever resource or, uh, for that matter, uh, whatever you need. We're, we'll, we'll find it, and we'll get it to you. Awesome. National Marijuana Initiative. Free stuff from the government. Um, uh, <laughs> free education, important education um, available to you. So definitely reach out to the dynamic duel of Ed and uh, uh, Dale with National Marijuana Initiative, part of Haida. I want to say thank you to Joseph, our medical student, on the home stretch to becoming an MD and the stress of matching in a residency. Thank you for your question and good luck in your future. You're going to be a great doctor. And thank you, Ed Shamalia and Dale Quigley. I'm a big fan of MMI. Honored to be on your Speakers Bureau. And thank you for the many uh, podcasts that you also sponsored. The privilege is ours, my dear. Yes, it is. We're, we're glad. We're glad to be a part of what you do, and we're proud of you too, Doc. Looking forward to seeing you in Illinois. We'll see ya. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit 
isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.